The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned nor operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests, and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Latter-day Lives podcast. My name is Sean Rapier. I am your host, and this is episode 22. And the last few weeks have been so fun as we have been very blessed to have conversations with people involved with uh, the hashtag Light the World campaign. And it has been so fun to to talk to these artists and find out what they're doing and to be a part of it all. This week, we're going to have a bit of a departure, and uh, our guest this week is just fascinating, but more of a traditional guest that we would have had before Light the World. A couple of uh, housekeeping notes. Uh, first of all, um, I've been doing show notes every week, and I've had a couple of people who really seem to like them, but based on the numbers we're seeing, not a lot of people go check out the show notes they take a very, very long time. So we're going to start something new, which is uh, instead of show notes, if there you have any questions about the episode, anything you can't find on the web or anything that was unclear, if you could just email me, I would be happy to email you back. I generally respond to emails pretty quickly uh, and you'll get my email information at the end. But so we're going to discontinue show notes for a while and kind of see how that goes. Another couple of notes, the next two weeks, the next two Mondays in a row are Christmas and New Year. And a couple of listeners have reached out and have said, hey, are you taking a break? Of course not. We're going to have two new episodes, one on Christmas Day and one on New Year's Day. And they will be somewhat themed toward Christmas and New Year. And that way, when you get your brand new iPad or your new phone or your new tablet, your new whatever gizmos you get, you can use it to listen to the Latter-day Lives podcast that day. And when you sleep in, hopefully on New Year's Day, <laughs> after a crazy night, then you can kick back with us and listen. So there will be new episodes each week. And we're excited about it. this week on the show. My guest, wow, Brian Blake. Brian has been a friend of mine since I was a teenager, uh, and it just has always been an incredible guy, a guy I've admired a lot. And has had a fascinating life. He's going to tell us today about his time uh, working in Washington, D.C., and especially being at the White House and Washington, D.C. during 9-11. I'm not going to spoil it anymore. I'll just let you listen to the interview. So kick back, relax. Without any further ado, here is this week's Conversation. Today on the Latter-day Lives podcast, we have a very special guest. My guest today, Brian Blake, uh, has made a career in Washington and has had some pretty pretty fascinating jobs and fascinating experiences, and we get to hear all about it. Brian, welcome to the show. Sean, it is truly a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so, for inviting so me. So glad you're here. And in fact, we are recording this from a clandestine <laughs> hotel in, we're in Baltimore right now, or out, just outside yeah. of Baltimore. Uh, as Brian lives in D.C. and I'm out here on some business, so it's great great to connect. More importantly, before we get to all this career stuff, tell us what calling you were released from a few weeks ago. I was released as a, a bishop of my ward, Fort Belvoir Ward in the Mount Vernon, Virginia stake just outside of D.C. And how, how long were you a bishop? I was bishop uh, six and a half years, almost to the day. I'm kind of like a kid that, you know, when you ask them how tall they are, they had that half inch there. <laughs> it was extra six months that half year. Yeah. It meant a lot. I 
No, it was a great experience. It was a, it's a military ward um, on the uh, Fort Belvoir is the, the base there. And uh, our chapel is actually, if you're ever in D.C. and you need to go to church and you've gone to Mount Vernon for the day, um, come up the parkway a little ways and you'll find our, our chapel. It's right on the Potomac River. It is on uh, George Washington's former plantation property. No uh, way. Your yeah, ward no, building it really, is? It really is. Now, it was his, his plantation covered, yeah. a, you know, but still, that's acres, cool. square miles. But it's very cool. That's awesome. In fact, yeah. we're the only chapel in the church that has a picture of founding father in the in the foyer. Which no is kidding. Approved by the. Church so you have a picture of George Washington. We have a painting of George Washington in our foyer. In the and, foyer of your church. In the foyer of the church, and it's a very colonial style church. I mean, the chapel itself has a very colonial style to it, and it's a fun place to go to church. So we often during uh, during the tour season get families coming through and yeah, and I bet joining us. It's fun. Oh, that's awesome. So let's step back and, and get a little bit of a picture of your life before we get into your time in Washington and, and all those questions. Tell us where you were born and where you grew up. So I grew up in a place near and dear to your heart, yes, Sean, San Jose, California, um, specifically kind of South San Jose, Almaden Valley. And, yep. Uh, spent my whole life there. My parents built their house. My mom still lives in it, and yep. my bedroom is still has some of my trophies on the wall. I'm embarrassed to say. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, does it I, really? It does. Your mom has left your trophies <laughs> up. Just a couple. Most yeah. of it's put away. My brothers took it over, but that's pretty but, cool. Uh, and you have two brothers. I have two brothers. I yeah. have a younger brother, Casey, who also lives out in in D.C. I actually live in Virginia, across the river from D.C. But yeah. it's all kind of one big metroplex. And then yeah. uh, my other brother lives out in Utah. Jeff. Very cool. Very cool. So you grew up in San Jose, California. Uh, for our listeners, full disclosure, Brian and I are very dear old, old, old friends. Indeed. Many, many years ago, Brian and I, along with three other guys, for some reason decided to start a club. Uh, we were all on a bus together <laughs> going to BYU for a youth conference. And because we were on a bus together, we started a club called, and this is a very clever title, the bus club. <laughs> that was it was literally called the bus club and we met once a month or so and and had sleepover parties and made videos and just had a great time. Yeah, so was... Brian and I have been friends for a long time. So Brian from San Jose, in fact, Brian was along with our friend Matt, Brian was the last person I saw before I went into the MTC. Indeed. Brian was going to BYU. And with Matt, yep. were, you, were you and Matt roommates? No, but we're on the same floor, same hall. Okay. But yeah, we so, so Brian and Matt were going to BYU, and I came out to the MTC, and my parents took us uh, out to lunch. Uh, it was me and, and Brian and Matt. So we went out to the training table, which is no more, Sadly. and had lunch, and, uh, and then I went into the MTC. So. so you left San Jose, you went to BYU. Yes. And then where did that take you after BYU? So I went to BYU. Um, I went uh, on a mission after my freshman year. I followed you in the MTC yeah. about a year later. Not, yeah, about a year later. Where did um, you serve? I went to New Zealand, to Auckland. Oh, yeah. Which was a, it's always fun to tell people that mission. Um, yeah. It, it always gets a reaction because it's kind of a, sounds like a vacation. I, as I tell everyone, though, after you get over the scenery, missionary works, missionary work, wherever yeah. you are. and. And my parents served a mission in Hawaii. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I hear that response a lot. That's a mission? It's a mission. Yeah. Yeah, no, I served my mission there. Came back to BYU. Um, and then, What did you study at BYU? So I, I, I grew up, my, my father passed away when I was about <clears throat> 10 and a half. 
years old. There I am with a half year again. Yeah. And he, uh, and so he was an airline pilot and, yeah. and I always wanted to follow him into that. But, uh, my mom and actually my dad was crushed cause he was a Navy pilot. And in this, you know, in the late seventies, I'm folding socks with my mom one night and I pick up this green sock and this brown sock and put them together and, and fold them together. And she says, those don't match. I said, no, they match. They match perfectly. No, no, they don't match. So she went and got my father and he was devastated because he wanted me to follow him into the, he was Being an aircraft, he was yeah. an aircraft fighter pilot in the Navy. And if you know anything about the military, colorblindness and the military don't go along yeah. very well, particularly if you want to, to fly. So, um, so my dad passed away and, and I got to college. My mom was a, my mom was a teacher. You know my mom. She's a fantastic woman. I will. I will vouch that uh, Brian's mom, whom I know very, very well, is one of the most amazing people you'll ever meet. She's just an incredible, incredible woman. And in fact, uh, I was in three or four plays that she directed. Yes. 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 In fact, in in the 1980s, I remember she was very upset because I wanted to dye my hair blonde, (laughs) and we were doing Oklahoma. Of which you were the lead. You were I curly. believe I was curly. No yeah. nepotism there, by the way. Yeah, none. <laughs> and so I was, uh, I think, made up farmer number three. <laughs> yeah, a nice but, straw hat on to cover your blonde hair. Yeah, but what a um, great lady your mom is. Just yeah, a, no. So she was terrific. Lady. But I mean, she was a teacher. She had a dance studio group that she ran. She was a uh, wonderful woman. But she kind of, you know, didn't. I didn't have a lot of career guidance because. I get to BYU and I said, well, what do I want to do with my life? And I grew up in Silicon Valley where everyone was kind of a tech nerd. This is before the bubble. But, but going back to the testing, so you are colorblind. Yeah, I am colorblind. You are colorblind. Yeah, I but never it's, not, it's not, it's the brown greens. You know, when you do those colorblind splotch tests, yeah. there's like two or three of them I can't do. But it precluded you it from It precluded me from the military. Career. So I needed yeah. to figure out what to do with my career. So yeah. I get to BYU and... And when I was when I was living in San Jose, I was a paper boy for five years, as you know. I know that. And I did the every route morning. With you a I'd times. get up and I'd fold papers, and it, it was drudgery, but it was good money. But every day I'd look, and I just really like politics. So I'd read the so San Jose Mercury News. I'd read the front page. I'd always go to the opinion page, and you know, half the time I'd disagree with what they were saying. Half the time I liked it. But I really was interested in politics, so I get to BYU, and I'm trying to figure out a major, and I really didn't have much direction. And and uh, I finally decided, you know, I'm going to go into political science. I just find this interesting. I had no idea what it could do as a career. None. I, I knew that some people became lawyers after it, but, yeah. but I'll always remember going home to San Jose, and our home teacher would come over. And, you know, since my father wasn't around, he always was trying. I had many men that were wonderful father figures yeah. to me, but sure. he always say, what? There's no career in, in political science. You need to get, go into math or engineering or, you know, business. And I kind of understood what he was saying. But, yeah. you know, if you're a Latter-day Saint, you understand. Sometimes you feel compelled to do things and you feel like they're the right thing to do. So, so you knew from a young age you wanted yeah, to get into politics. I, I liked it. It was I just yeah. liked the debate. I liked the, the um, ability to, to affect change. Yeah. So I... Uh, so I got to BYU. I started majoring in political science, and through that, the the major was great. If you ask me about political philosophy, I'm not your, you know, a student of of yeah. Aristotle or or Burke, sure. the the great philosophers as much. But I learned that I love to write and mm. I like to communicate. So I kind of focused on politics and media yeah. in my major. And when I uh, 
one, one day I was walking through the Spencer W. Kimball Tower, and there's a and I was just at BYU this summer. And I noticed it's still there. There's a, one of those kind of like display boxes there, and it had yeah. a BYU Washington seminar program. And I said, I need to do that. A Washington Washington seminar program. Washington seminar program. Yeah. So it's the BYU internship program to DC. So I, I had no idea that existed. Yes, it's it's a when I went to it, and I'm one of your. You know, I'm not young anymore, but when I went, it, it, BYU didn't have an actual building location. Now they have the, I think it's called the Barlow Center. It's down on Pennsylvania Avenue, right between. I didn't between. know that. BYU yeah. has a building yes. in it's, Washington, It's actually the church's building. It's a, I had no clue. Yeah. So the, the interns now live there. When I was there, we lived way out in Alexandria and had to ride the metro. But um, it was a, it's a, I need to do this. So I came to D.C. At that point, I thought I might be a lawyer. So I uh, interned with uh, the D.C. prosecutor's office. So I thought that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, and it was very interesting. <laughs> the D.C. prosecutor. Yes. So, D.C. prosecutorial. So it was, it's called the Corporation Council for the District of Columbia, and I worked in the juvenile division. So each day, I'd get, most of my friends at BYU were doing um, congressional internships or your know, traditional yeah. internship. But I was trying to see what the law would be like. So... Um, it was, it was a really interesting place to work. I remember what, 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 what was the big takeaway? <laughs> the what big takeaway big... was the the nice thing for my career was it really exposed me to, um, you know, so it was in the juvenile division. So it exposed me to what crime really does to people, yeah. but also how the people that perpetrate crime have often are perpetrating because someone perpetrated on them. Yeah. So it gave me a lot more empathy at the same time understanding that justice needs to be had and people need to be protected. Yeah. But it also helped me understand, you know, why do criminals do things they do? And I thought that was, that was really useful for me, especially as my career progressed and I got more into, we'll talk about later, but working in, in drug policy, it yeah. was, it was a useful place. My favorite moment though of it was one day when they came in and they needed, um, I was a huge Seinfeld fan. I still am. And my, one of my favorite too. episodes is when Kramer is in a police lineup Oh, yeah. <laughs> so right after that episode aired, I'm at work, and they come in, and they say, we need a 24-year-old white guy. We've got a, a, a rape suspect that needs to do a, a lineup. And so, you, you know. to be in a lineup. So I was in a lineup. So oh I walked gosh, in, and, cool. and it was, I walked in, and they had a couple of cops, because they were just grabbing people from the justice <laughs> building there, the courthouse there. I'm and they so put us jealous. all, we, and we're changing into, they put you into, like, um, just old shirts, so you all kind of look the same. Oh, you didn't and go in you, your suit no, and tie. no. You don't go in your suit and tie, so you change into like some you know shirt that you'd get at Goodwill or DI. And but while you're changing, there's literally a guy in a cage over in the corner who's the actual suspect. So you're getting ready, and then they take him out and they walk you out, and then they no way. So you're looking at the super bright lights, and they're saying turn left, you know, turn right center and then the whole time i'm thinking of the episode because i was next to the guy <laughs> so i was wanted... next to the rape suspect who yeah. was likely yeah. guilty and i'm thinking of this episode with kramer where you're wanting to point i wanted guy. to kind of go this guy, this and, guy. you know yeah. lurch my head guy. towards him but it was, yeah. it was but i was i have to say I, that was gosh the, i've always man, i would love to be in a it was one of my life dreams and yeah. it also made me really glad i wasn't the suspect so did did, did <laughs> the did the person pick out the suspect yes they did so but I heard later it was thrown out because the suspect had red hair and no one else in the lineup did. So, uh, so it wasn't really a good lineup, but uh, yeah. it's all right. But yeah, so that was a, it was a good time. How long were you there? 
I was only there for the summer. That yeah. was the summer. I had to go back and internship. finish at BYU. Yeah, internship. Yeah. So but, you go back to BYU. Yes. But did you kind of fall in love with the area out here? Yes. Yeah. Then? So I got something that people in D.C. will know the term. It's called Potomac Fever. Potomac it means fever. you are – you. well, it's the area plus you're at the center of power. And you just the kind energy, of get yeah. this energy of – Wow, when I watch, you know, the news, they're talking about what's going on on the building down the street from where I am. Right. Or, you know, and, yeah. and so it, and, you're, and you're kind of at the center of, of where things are happening. And yeah. if you're into policy, if you're into politics, you know, sure. Sacramento is interesting. And, but, yeah. but D.C. This is, is even more. This is where it happens. So. so much the same way, like, comedians and actors go to New York or L.A. Yes. And Mormons go yes, to Utah. Yes, Mormons go to Utah. <laughs> and then... Policy, policy, wonks. policy. People, yeah. anyone that's in politics. Do you use the word "wonk"? Is "wonk" a real Wonk's word? "Wonk" a real word. I hear it's, "wonk" a lot on political shows. Yes, "wonk" just. Is, I mean, it's not like you get a certification yeah. that you're a wonk. <laughs> just <laughs> so, if you're really into politics, you just. It's more of a policy thing. Yeah. If you get a, if you get into a certain, if you're really area. into policy. Your policy yes, wonk. Exactly. That's the phraseology. Exactly. So you go back to BYU. Yes. Yeah. Did you graduate from BYU? So I graduated from BYU, and of course, I was not. Married at the time. Yeah. I was in my last year at BYU. And, and you know, that's kind of a scary thing if you're a BYU student. You just expect that, oh, well, my last year, by then I'll have met a wife. And Is that really – so you were a little bit nervous about not well, having gotten married yet? Not really because my mom – I came from a family where my mom, I realized later, she had ingrained in me. You don't need to get married too young because she yeah. got married at 25. My dad was, I think, 30 and that was in the, yeah. you know, 60s. So it yeah. was – they had gotten married really late for their era. Sure. And so – she was fine with it. But you also are like, wow, I'm at this place where there are literally 15,000, you know, options. Worthy Mormons. And worthy Mormons. Yeah. And now I'm going out into, into the world. Out into the wilderness. So, exactly. Yeah. So um, I actually, I decided after my, it was interesting, the, the, my internship, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. I was, there was a lot of bureaucratic, sure. I won't go into that, but it was just, I could tell it wasn't for me. Yeah. And so I, uh, but I really like communication. So I'm like, I want to go into, into communication and, and work with media and, and, and that sort of thing. So I started looking into, at the time I thought, well, you can't go into something like this if you don't have experience or, or degree. Huh. So I need to get a master's degree to do this. I look back now and go, Nah, I should have gone out and gotten a job. And but at the time, I, I said I need to go out. So I applied all over the country to uh, master's degree programs in journalism, public relations, communication. Wow. Um, got into all the schools I applied and um, did a bunch of visits and decided. You know, my I one of the, the tough thing for me was I'm a Californian. You know that. And yeah, I sure. Dreamed about going back to California someday. And, right. And I got into. A, USC and and I was like, oh, this will be great. I can go back to surfing. I can yeah, surfing, this life. The beach and, and yeah, but then I University of Maryland also, and so I went out to University of Maryland and and I had one of those Mormon moments where you just know that this is where you're this supposed to be. I'm it was clear. It was, it was clear. calling you. It was. I, I like it when you're you know praying, fasting, looking for answers. It's always nice to get a real answer. It's to get a real answer. Yeah. But I mean. To be fair, I put in time and effort, and, yeah, but it paid off. I paid. I did all the research. I visited places, but it was clear when it was the Lord choice. Lord says go to Maryland. Yes. So I went to the University of Maryland, um, which is, for those that don't know, it's inside the Beltway, which is the big freeway that goes around yeah. D.C. and just on the northern, just outside the district of Columbia. And uh, and by the way, if you want to go from University of Maryland 
into downtown, depending on the time of day, it takes anywhere from 12 minutes to seven hours. <laughs> Which is true. I just actually drove the opposite way today. <laughs> so I get to spend a lot of time out one, here. one of my favorite moments was you, I... You, you can't plan for it. No, you can't. I, I, I decided when I first got there, I was I biked a lot in Utah. And I said, I'm going to bike into the district. It's only like 10 miles. and I'll, So I got on the road and halfway down, I realized... I don't think bicyclists normally come through here. And then this is not a lie. All of a sudden there are gunshots right in my ear. What? And I'm I'm I was like terrified and there's a kid with a cap gun shooting at me. Oh and my I said, gosh. I'm probably not going to bike into the district yeah, again. That was your one that was biking my one, adventure. That was my you'd think I'd know better after my internship but but, so you uh, get your master's yeah. degree at Maryland. I do. Yeah. Which is just an awesome school. Yeah, no, it's a great place. It yeah. Was, it was fun. And then you're here. Now you're already here. So now you've got a master's degree in... in, in uh, it's actually in communication. My in program moved from the journalism school to communication. Right. So, it changed so you, you've got a master's degree yes. in communication. You're already living in the heart of politics. Yes. Where do you go from there? So then I needed to find a job. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, I... You know, you're know, still single at this point. Yes, I'm still single. So I've yeah. done two more years outside of that. Now, I'm going to say this for your listeners. If you are a... Single Mormon over the age of 25, the place to move is Northern Virginia. I mean, it is it is a mecca. In fact, they just created a single stake in Virginia D.C. It's the place. It to is, be. and so at the time there was a there was a ward. It still exists, but now it's two wards. It's called Colonial Ward, and it was renowned around the country as this is a great place to to go. Oh, awesome! I mean, it's just full of great people. They're sure. doing stuff of their lives, and it's it's just an interesting place. So I went to. I decided I'm going to move over Virginia. Yeah, uh, moved over and uh, started going to Colonial Ward. And uh, within the first week, um, a really close friend of mine from BYU. I was friend. We stayed in touch, but I went over and was visiting her apartment and. And, uh, you know, I always went at the beginning of the semester. This was like September 1st because she had new roommates that yeah. just moved in. And <laughs> she may not have known that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> she now. yeah, she does now. No, she knew it later. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. one, one of her roommates was this uh, beautiful young woman, Rebecca. And uh, we began dating and, and uh, the rest is history. It took us, you know, a little over a year to, to tie the knot, a year and a half. But, I remember I got your wedding announcement and I went, Ah, Brian's still single. Yeah. yeah. And this is pre-Facebook. Yeah. You know? yeah so no, exactly. I, I got the wedding announcement and actually I got to go to Brian's wedding reception. Yeah. So it was great. It's in San Jose. Uh, yeah, out in San Jose. So it's a beautiful day. So how long have how long have you and Rebecca? So we've been, been married, married fifteen years and uh I was hoping you'd throw in the half. No, there's no half. There's no half. That. I'm done with halves. Yeah. We were married for fifth we've been married for fifteen years. Um yeah. she's from it's a funny story, she was born in Good Samaritan Hospital in San Jose. No kidding. But immediately moved away. This is the hospital That's everyone funny. in San Jose is Everybody born in. Everybody in San Jose is born in Good um, Sam. But her family moved away, and she grew up in mostly in Buffalo. Yeah. So uh, her family's pretty close. But we So have... you guys get married. What's your first job in your career? So my first job in my career, Rebecca was, was awesome, because I moved over without a job, and I was actually finishing my master's thesis, so I wasn't even nice. fully graduated, but I was done with classes. And... She, I mean, it took a lot of faith. I'm some guy that was, you know, sure. I was living in an apartment, single guy, looking for work, you know, telling everyone I'm working on my thesis, but really yeah. kind of trying to figure out what to do. So that same roommate of hers um, that I knew from my poli-sci program at BYU, um, this is around 2000, 2001, actually. She had just 
um, joined the new Bush administration. They just come in into office, and it was this everyone. Is the George W. Yeah, George Bush. W. Bush. Yeah, I'm not that yeah. old. Um, well, just for our younger <laughs> listeners who yes. may, may or may not yes. know all the, the so two thousand. So he came into he won the election in two thousand. And yeah. for those who need a brief history lesson, there was a lot of dispute on that election with a lot of chads. And that was the hanging the, chads. That actually that. worked out in my favor in a big way because normally a whole campaign moves. You know, the people that have worked for years getting this person elected yeah. come to Washington with them. Yeah. And because there was so much, you know. Uh, People weren't clear on who how this was going to end. A lot of those people hadn't moved. So when they when he got into the White House, a lot of people were still in Texas because they hadn't had a chance to move yet. They weren't sure if he was going to be seated as president. So um, my friend uh, Jan, she, she I was hanging out with her one day, and I said, "Hey, I'm only taking you know one class at night to finish my degree. Um, do you guys need any help?" She was at the White House in the in the presidential personnel department, which is nice. who staffs all of the. The offices awesome. and she said, "Oh, I'd love for you to come volunteer." So I, she said, "You could volunteer." So basically, I was a full time employee without being paid. Did this for about three months, and wow. uh, you know, but it was super fun. Great experience. Great experience. I was in the there's a building called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. It's a beautiful building right next to the White House. So I was working in there, and uh, all of a sudden, one day, uh, her boss, who was also LDS, we were kind of this small LDS cabal and yeah. <laughs> um he yeah. brought me in and and uh he's now in our state presidency a good friend of mine but he brought me in and asked me uh hey you've been working here for a while do you want to want a job would you like I to get said, paid yeah i'd really like to get paid and you're i was come, a little shy. i was too anyway. shy to ask because i didn't feel like i deserved <laughs> it but you know he's like you've been working here for three months why haven't you asked me yet i said oh, i thought you were going to ask me he's like well i'm asking you now so i you know went down he said what job do you want to do and i wanted to stay in the white house the White House is bigger than just the White House. The it's, house itself. It's yeah. the house itself. When I people to talk s- about, I worked at the White House. Yes. Can that mean then? That that can, it can mean, bro- there's the executive office of the president, which is the broader thing. But you yeah. all have a White House credential. So you yeah. can get in and out of the, yeah. in the White House. Because the White House itself is really the West Wing and the East Wing, which are quite small. And that's mm. really valuable Powerful real estate. Sure. Most people in there are either <laughs> senior advisors or they're young, you know, staff assistants. Right. So uh, most of the people work in some of the buildings surrounding the White House. Okay. So one of those offices was called the Office of National Drug Control Policy. And it just really interested me. I just felt guided to it. It's, a, I, you know, an issue. I felt like I dealt with people with addiction mm. and drugs in my life growing up. And yeah, it's a major and issue. It, it was a major issue. And um, I, so I took a job there. And um, I started out working in the press office with my background. And over the course of my time there, I, I got with a terrific um, mentor boss named John Walters. Um, he's the He was the president's drug czar, which his real yeah. title is the director of uh, the office, director of national drug control policy. But he was a member of President Bush's cabinet. And he was the, him and uh, Secretary Chow, who was the Labor Secretary were the only two cabinet members who were there the whole eight years. Really? Which was unique because it kind of allowed me to be there for eight years. You how kind of stick how with long things. has there been a drug czar? Had there been a drug czar So before? the drug czar office came into being in um, like 89, um, okay. I believe. I should check my... No, it was 89. It was during George W. George H.W. H. Bush's Bush. administration yeah. when the drug the use was of it. just absolutely peaking among among youth. So it, it had been around and it had been cabinet level, which means that person has status with secretary yeah. of defense and, and those other folks um, f- 
from the beginning. So, so you go to work for the drug czar. Is, is that good phraseology? Or yes, it is. Up? He hated okay. the term, but sure. it's the easiest. That's what everybody say. says. Yeah, that's the drug says. czar. Yes. And so, what exactly were you doing when you were first hired? Then, so when I was first hired, I was I was the I was one of the first um, full time political appointees. So the way the government works, for those that don't know, is there are about four to six thousand jobs in federal government that are direct appointees of the new president. So when President Obama comes in, all the people that were part of George W. Bush's team resign or are asked to resign, and then those spots are filled by yeah. the president. So sure. that's how he implements policy. And then every office has mostly staffed with career civil servants who really are supposed to be nonpartisan, and, and they and they are. And then they just work to get the job done, the mission done, yeah. whoever the chief executive is. So... Um, I, I, t- I was the first political, I actually shouldn't say the first, I was the second over there um, out of about 300 people working wow. in, the, in that office. So I started out doing, doing press. And, um, so when you say doing press, like what would you do on an average day? Oh, on an average day, I would, uh, <laughs> we had, since we, we were in charge of the ads don't, aren't funded anymore, but we had this big national youth anti-drug media campaign. So mm. I remember one of my, my first business trip, which I was so excited about because <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Someone came to me on a, on a Thursday and said, Hey, we need you to go to Seattle tomorrow. And I mean, I'm used to traveling like a yeah. normal person where you've got to buy your ticket six yeah. months in advance to get the cheapest. They're like tomorrow. I'm like, it's gonna be really expensive. Yeah. It's so they're exciting. like, we need to go to Seattle because we are having a Guinness book of world's record for the, I can't even remember what it was. It was some silly sign that people, an anti-drug pledge people had signed in a mall in Seattle. And they were having a guy fly in from England to certify that this is a Guinness Book of World Records. Oh. So I needed to go out and yeah. get some press for that. Sure. So those, that's what I started out doing. Um, it, was, uh, it was events like that that were anti-drug focused. But yeah. since we didn't have a director, a drug czar in place, we just had an acting person that was a career guy. There wasn't a lot of direction at that point. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, I just started out doing stuff like that. Um, a lot of PR type stuff. Just PR type stuff. Yeah. Communication, dealing with the media. Um, Did you ever do interviews on with, behalf of the yeah, drug Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I do occasional radio interviews. I do, um, we didn't usually do a lot of debates, but yeah, I do a spokesperson. Yeah. Um, we had a press secretary. I was the deputy press secretary to start out with. I mean, I was a new, I was green. I wasn't, they were awesome. going to put me out there. Um, so it was, it's interesting because my, on the morning of 9-11, yeah. my boss, 2001. How, how long had you been then at the White House when 9-11? I'd been there since May, about May 1st. Okay, so I'd only been, been there about been there for three or four months. months. Yeah. And, and wow. like I said, the first three and a half I'd been working in the, as a volunteer. Yeah. So I, uh. I went to, uh, that morning was going to be, um, director Walter's morning, his confirmation hearing. You know, when you get these, the bigger positions, the bigger political appointments, you have to go before a congressional hearing, which we've all seen that. Um, so his hearing was that morning and morning of 9-11. So we came to work early, like excited. This is a big day for you. It's a big day for us because, Hey, our boss is finally going to get here. Finally going to get confirmed. Gets confirmed. And then we'll have. Know, some direction and we'll have, we'll know what we're supposed yeah. to be doing. Um, and so, you know, so on you the got way in to work, early. Yeah. So that morning I get in at, I remember I was in about eight 30 and in DC, everybody has TVs in their offices. Um, it's just, you kind of have the new, I shouldn't say everybody, if you're yeah. a law firm, you don't, but every political kind of person does. Yeah. They got to keep w- up on what's going on in the, the news. news throughout yeah. The day. So sure. 
I remember it was, it was about 8.30 in the morning and I was, um, I had my TV on and all of a sudden I just, and I usually have it on mute and I look and there's this kind of smoky hole in one of the World Trade Center towers. And I, and so I was just looking at it and I turned the sound on, of course, and my, my colleague, a uh, guy named Raphael, good guy, I said, hey, you seeing this? He goes, he goes, yes, we turned the sound on and the newscasters don't know anything yet. They're saying, we're getting these pictures in and, and it looks like a small Cessna has flown into, into the World Trade Center. And I, and, and I looked at the size of the hole. And I'd just been to the World Trade Center. I mean, it'd been a few times, but I'd just yeah. recently been. And I'd stood at the bottom on the corner and looked up. I said, that building is so wide. That, that is, is not, not a Cessna. Cessna. That is yeah. like a full-size jumbo jet that yeah. went in there. And so we're watching that. And it wasn't five minutes later when all of a sudden the second jet plows into the other building. And the fireball that is just burned into my memory yeah. no pun intended is no right we all we just, all we, we remember that fireball and yeah. i will never forget there were just literal gasps down the hall screams like what's happening and it was yeah. it was absolutely you know earth shaking and because we had already talked about this has got to be a terrorist attack it's a perfectly clear yeah. day and then that absolutely confirmed yeah. it and we saw the size of the jet going in right so um as i said we didn't have our real leadership in place yet, but we did have an acting director, a good guy, but he wasn't really a, an executive who was ready to take command in a situation like this. So we had this regular senior staff meeting that happened at 9am every, this was a Tuesday morning. You had the staff meeting after. Yeah. So no, no. So it happens and we're all gasping and he says, well, let's all get in our staff meeting. We're like, are you crazy? Shouldn't we be calling like, cause we're across the street from the white house. And we're like, shouldn't we be asking them what, what to do? And he's like, well, I'll have someone check, but let's get in our meeting. So we have a TV on up in the, in the conference room. There's about 12 of us in there and no one can concentrate. And we're saying, why are we meeting? But yeah. no one wants to be insubordinate to this guy. But but it's amazing looking back at what 9-11 yes. actually was. Oh, yeah. That the tower get hit and he says, let's go into a staff yeah, meeting. Yeah, let's go into a staff meeting. That's amazing. It was, we <laughs> kind of thought that at the time. So yeah. we're sitting there and, and while we're watching it, this is something I'll never forget. We're watching this and across the street from the White House is what's called Lafayette Park. And across from that is the Hay Adams Hotel. And that's, it's no building in DC is more than 12 stories, but the Hay Adams, they kind of sell some of their space above on the top of their building and let the networks have live cameras up there that can always shoot the White House on oh, a live okay. shot. Like they'll do remotes from up there yeah. with anchors you'll sure. see, but they just always have those cameras up there. So they turn one of them on. And we're watching this and we have it on mute and we're, and all of a sudden we see this black billowing smoke, which looks like it's coming kind of out from behind the White House. And this dear friend of mine at the time, you know, screams this, this woman and, and she's really upset. And yeah. she's like, we're, we're under attack because this is across the street from where we are. Oh and we're not, le- and this is an interior conference room. So immediately the order broke down that we're like, we're yeah. done with we're, this meeting. Yeah, Find out what's going on. So the Secret Service, is in a panic because they're dealing, their primary job is to deal with the president. They don't care. You've got secret service. It's not that they don't care about the staff, but that's not their job. And so, so they're just focused on getting him wherever they, you know, well, he wasn't there, but just kind of getting the senior people that are in place. So we just, at that point, colleague of mine and I said, we've got to leave this building. We can't stay here. So, so for, for those who are not familiar with the layout of DC, yes. How far were you from the Pentagon? Which is what was As the crow flies, it's probably a mile and a half. 
Yeah. I mean, it's very close. Very and close. if you've been to the mall, DC, you know the mall is right. the runs from the from the uh, from the Lincoln from Memorial. the Lincoln Memorial up to the up to the to the U.S. Capitol, and yep. then crosshatch on that. It's kind of a cross is the White House to the Jefferson, which right. isn't as obvious. But then immediately you have the Potomac River, and the and the Pentagon has a water entrance on the Potomac. So I mean, yeah. it is the, it's, right it's right there. You're like yeah. a mile away. And so what this camera was picking up was the Pentagon explosion we couldn't see it because it was kind of compression on the lens but it was picking up all the black smoke coming did they know it was the pentagon at that time like yeah. on the screen no no they didn't pentagon? they didn't as you we're living saw. this live we're we don't know what this is we, so you you're in a white house building yes and you're seeing smoke coming up from behind the, from white, the, house, behind the white house right after you see the attack yes, on the yes. Towers. and so we're Brian, like this is like the most terrifying yeah thing. we're no we're absolutely scared i i mean it was scary but it was also just exhilarating like i'm living something What's going to happen next? Like, this is just weird. Oh, my God. So we decide, we said, we've got to evacuate our building. We're, you know, Mormons are taught to be self-reliant. So <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to sit around. And I've read a great book since called, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's about how people react in um, disaster. Yeah, and, I think and, I read that same and, one. And, um, and it was, it the people that end up dying, as this book postulates, are people that usually are waiting around for someone else to tell them what to do. And so we had, um, we decided, look, we've got to get out of here. So we just kind of told the, our acting head, like, we're going to gather people and leave. And he said, okay. So at that point, I go down the hallway and one of my good friends is missing and his wallet and his keys are on his desk. And then other people don't seem to care at all. I've got a lot of former military, you know, Marine colonels that work there that are, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. This is nothing. Wow. They've seen worse in their life. Did it feel like anarchy and chaos? Yeah, it was kind of anarchy and chaos. So some people, I'm saying, you've got to leave now. And other people um, were worried that they're hiding. Because you don't know how people are going to react. I'm worried someone's hiding in a bathroom stall. So we kind of searched the building, realized, all right, everyone's gone or, or on their way out. So head out to the street. And that's the part I'll never forget. That was like a movie of a disaster movie. There are... It's pure chaos. There's car horns honking, people driving on the wrong side of the road. There are pedestrians are just weaving in and out of cars. Um, the things that struck me most were I saw two separate individuals in business suits, one a man, one a woman, in the fetal position on the ground, like just paralyzed with no fear. No kidding. Yeah, just we don't know where to go. And the, and the worst part was the news at that point was reporting every rumor. So one of the... Things I'd seen before I left the building was that the State Department had been bombed, which is just about, it's down in Foggy Bottom, but that's, you know, yeah. 10 blocks from us to the, sure. to the west. So um, we head out, and and because D.C., we wanted to get away from the White House because we knew yeah. that would be a target. If there's other planes, at this point we knew planes were attacking buildings. One had hit the Pentagon, two had hit the World Trade Center, and there were still planes missing. So we're like... And now you're without... Like no protection. Media. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you're also without media. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have information. There's no smartphones. No smartphones. So once you left that building, yes. you don't have a TV in front no, of you. nothing. You have no way to be updated at no. any minute. So you don't know if the entire country's been attacked. Exactly. You don't know what's going on. Exactly. And all I know is pe- and people are in terror and fear. Oh my I mean, gosh. I was real terror. People Brian, running I, and I, screaming, I, crying, spreading rumors. I, one of the parts I remember most was at one point I heard a rumor on a street corner People are just yelling things. The the Washington Monument's been hit. It's 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 fallen down. They hit the Washington Monument, and the Washington Monument is like a quarter mile from our office. I mean, it is. I can see it all the time, oh but it's behind gosh. buildings. So I remember going. I think it was Fifteenth Street we got to because we started working our way 
to one of my friend's apartments because I didn't want to go back to Virginia. I lived across the river, so I could have walked home in probably an hour across the bridge, but I just want to stay away from where that attack is. And so we are walking on the street and I get to 15th street and I go, I can't see the Washington monument. It must be true. It must be down. And then because I thought I could see it from there. And then the next block I see it and I go, Oh good. It's still there. there. But it was just living that chaos and believing anything, anything could be true. That could be completely true. If they're attacking monuments, why wouldn't they? What a surreal experience it must've been. It was just wonder. So I always wonder how I would respond to that. Did prayer come into your mind at any of this or was it just pure survival? No, prayer came into your mind. Absolutely. And you were looking for peace and calm. It's kind of one of those moments where you want to look for the comforter, right? And so I I definitely, I felt like I was going to be okay, but I wasn't sure. But I was okay. I mean, one of the nice things about being a Mormon is you... You know, you believe you know what's going to happen to you. So when you get into a situation like that, you're like, and if we die before we the die, journey's yeah, through, exactly, all so, is well. So you know, I mean, and wow, and well, it, plus you didn't have you didn't have kids at this point. No, to worry no, I about. wasn't even married. I, think, I wasn't even married. Yeah, yet, you're right. single. I yeah. think if you had been married and had kids at home, yes, this takes on a different yeah, level. Absolutely, absolutely, of panic. So I had just to finish the story. I had to my we had to my friend's apartment. It was like it. I think it was near Fifth Street, which is closer to the Capitol. The way it works is Capitol is it. You know, North is a Capitol Street. Then it goes first, second, third, Zero, all the way yeah. to Sixteenth, which is where the where the White House is. Um, and so we were getting closer to the Capitol, and mm. she had this great view of the Capitol building. And we just sat there and watched the news. And I just watched the Capitol building, waiting for a plane to fly into it, because at that wow. point you were sure it was going to happen again. There were planes up everywhere, and then we hear about the plane going down in Shanksville. Yeah, um, and. I mean, it was just, it was... just felt like it, it, it was all yeah. around. And then all of a sudden, the weirdest part of this, I just sat there all day feeling nervous. And and what do I do? And then all of a sudden it was dark. And I was like, what time is it? Because <laughs> I just, we just been watching. If you remember those days, the, the news networks, even the regular networks, NBC, ABC, yeah. CBS, went to 24-7, no commercial yeah. news. Like they didn't that. have, and that was the advent for those of you who are... The younger listeners, the crawl that drives you nuts on the bottom of the screen. Yeah. The crawl was invented during 9-11 because they wanted to keep information going all the time about right. things that they knew. Um, and so, you know, about 7 o'clock that night, 8 o'clock when it was dark. Um, and it was a beautiful blue day. I will never forget that. It was perfect mm. D.C. weather. It was Yeah, September is September is perfect. No DC. humidity. Yeah. And I uh, decided, all right, I'm going to go home. I guess off the walk. And then I went down to the metro, which is D.C.'s subway system. And it was working, which surprised me. I'm and surprised the metro was I running. I was, too. I guess you have to move people uh, yeah, around yeah. the city. So I took the metro home a few stops. And um, at the time, I lived in what's called Pentagon City, which is, as you would expect, right next to the Pentagon. <laughs> right it's in Arlington, Pentagon. Virginia. Yeah. It's also known as Little Provo because there are <laughs> the reason the whole colonial ward lived in that area, 500 yeah. members. Lots um, of Mormons. Yeah, lots of apartment buildings, houses. But um, I got out of the metro and immediately smelled the smoke from the Pentagon. It was wow. It was acrid and it smelled awful. And so I walked home. I got my wife now. She was my girlfriend yeah. at the time, but Rebecca, we weren't right. even engaged yet. And we walked two blocks from my apartment to where all the cameras were set up overlooking the hole in the Pentagon. And we cried. I mean, we literally sat there and cried. It was mm. really emotional. You knew that... And you were able to see from where you oh, were. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was... I was standing next to the Gosh. CNN reporter. I mean, 
not behind their cameras, yeah. just looking at this. And they had already unfurled the flag. They had lights on uh. the hole, but the hole was smoking. It, it burned for days afterwards. And you knew that people were, there were remains in there. And one member of our stake passed away who was, who was a, a young um, employee of the Navy. His name was Brady Howell. He was 26. Um, he was working in, you know, it was hard. It was hard to. Yeah. And, and the, one of the things I'll never forget is when one of those women that when she, when we found out the Pentagon had been hit, most of my coworkers were military. They knew people at the Pentagon yeah. and they had family at the Pentagon. And it was, it was a wow. really personal thing. Um, and it, and it made me, I remember being really just angry. Yeah. Like, who would do this? And what purpose does this serve? This isn't going to bring America down. No, it's just evil. Yeah. And it's just, Horror and terror. At what point did you feel safe? At what point did you think, okay, the attacks are over? Well, it it took a couple of years and it was. um, Years. Well, let me explain why. So, right, we. So, first of all, I didn't want to ride the Metro anymore. And I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not like a, you know, paranoid person, but I said the Metro. (laughs) So, the Metro metro goes under the river. the, The line I took is the blue line. It goes through, it goes under the river. And I'm like, all someone has to do is put a little backpack bomb on and blow this thing up, and this tunnel's flooded, and everyone's dead. Yeah. And it was so easy. You just thought, at that moment, yeah. if they could do something so grandiose, of course, there's some other guy, second wave attacker, who's going to do something smaller. And, yeah. and so I actually started riding my bike to work, which was great for my health. It was only, it was just a quick, it was a beautiful ride. I'd ride past the monuments. But um, then yeah. in winter, I'm like, maybe I'll take the metro. So I, it took a month or two to get back on the metro. And then, um, and then, but DC had a bunch of other, Crazy things happened after that. Then we had the anthrax attacks, which oh, people that's forget. Right. I forgot about people the, started mailing anthrax yeah. to the to the, which they still never really solved. And then right. one, and then I believe it was the next year we had the uh, sniper attacks, which was about as terrifying the as the thing snipers, you lived through. The, the highway snipers, yeah, I, they yeah. just went around and they were killing which they people did around. Catch. Yeah, they did catch the guy them, and but the younger guy, yeah, yeah, guy and the younger yeah. guy. But they, you know, spent. A month or two, just randomly time. killing people around, and we were people. sure that was Al Qaeda because it was doing exactly what they wanted, which was terror. So it, took it a turned few out years. to be it just took a crazy, crazy guy, guys. a crazy guy, and some kid, crazy and, guy who he convinced yeah, another he crazy a kid, kid to yeah to do it. So. Brian, I didn't realize I had never thought about that timeline. Yeah, so I think for I think for you know we actually have a pretty nice sized international audience now, but I think Good. for Americans, you know, we all have a. A visceral connection to 9-11. Sure. I mean, every one of us. We were attacked. Yes. We as a nation were attacked. But for me, I never felt threatened. Like, I think by that night, you know, it was, it was, uh, by that night, we kind of were like, okay, this is yeah. over now. Yeah, right. But at no point did I think that Linden, Utah, where I live, was sure. a target, you know, that did I think, and maybe even Salt Lake, but not Linden. I right. didn't feel, but for you to have that, threat i mean that's a lot to deal with yeah no it was and i'm sure people are still dealing with it now you know some 16 years later well it it was interesting when i was i wrote a post about this on my facebook page but which um you must have read because you (laughs) you mentioned my 9-11 story but um we when i was driving into work about you know, on 9-11, this 9-11 anniversary, which is, what, 16 years later? Yeah, 16 so it's not years. even like some 20th anniversary. Yeah. It was 16 years later. I'm driving into work, and people still remember it in this area, in our area very much. It's very near to the heart. And people put up American flags on these bridges, and I got emotional, which I was shocked. 
I was shocked. I'm like, I had something that I lived through that was traumatic. Yeah. I, I don't compare it at all to, I mean, my experience compared to someone who actually lost a loved one or who was injured, who endured the terror. I don't at all put myself on that level. But to live through that visceral, yeah. terrifying experience and to know people that were affected by it, and it brings emotion still. And, and you've been there. You've been to the Pentagon. I yeah, mean, you've, absolutely. You've spent time there. Yes. That's a very much a, that could have been me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've toured D.C. like anyone, yeah, but not, you know, not the everyday that you live. And and when I I genuinely the heroes that that saved the that drove the plane into the ground, um, yeah, in Shanksville, that plane was headed to D.C. It was either going to yeah. hit the Capitol or the White House, but it could have been someplace I was. Yeah. So I mean, I I think about true that. heroes, true heroes. I mean, uh, sacrificing Flight themselves. Yeah, Flight ninety three. Amazing, Brian. That is such a a crazy experience. I remember a year later, you know, we, I think we, you know, 9-11 is special, but, you know, I wasn't affected at all personally, but I remember uh, I was in a young men's presidency and the bishop asked that we put out flags on the one year anniversary of 9-11. Right. And I had to work that morning at eight. means I got to get up at five. <laughs> I've got to try to get deacons out of bed. Right. And I remember I was in the worst mood. Like, why are we doing this? We're in Utah. We have nothing to do with 9-11. We went and put out all the flags. And this is a year later. And I got back and they had live coverage of uh, the field in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. in New York, and in D.C., yeah where they just stood and read off the names. They had right. family members get up and read off the names. And I remember bawling my eyes out yeah. and being so grateful that we had at least done a tiny bit to honor them. Right. So I can't imagine what it would be like every 9-11 for you yeah. and for the, the citizens in D.C. and in Pennsylvania and in, in uh, New York. Brian, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Well, uh, crazy. I mean, that's a lot of what I wanted to hear about was 9-11, but also tell us about the White House. Let's get on to something, <laughs> something more, you know, maybe more positive, yeah, so, but also interesting. Uh, no, it, I mean, tell us some of your experiences. So you, what parts of the White House, like how, where have you been in the White House? I, well, there are different tiers of access. Yeah. I, when I was at the White House, I topped out as the deputy chief of staff of my agency for the last four years. So I was often over at the White House, meeting with senior staff there. Principals meetings, though, were, were my boss's venue. So yeah. I don't pretend that I was, you know, sitting around the cabinet table. Who are some of the interesting Bush. people you got to meet? Oh, I'll never forget. One of the fun things about working in the White House is you get invited to parties occasionally. Yeah. You know, they bring in staff and mix them with the guests. So I'll never forget. One of the more surreal moments of my life was um, President Bush had nominated uh, Justice Alito to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And so we were invited to some party and, and there was like, a, they usually brought in a band and, but the musical that act that night was Wayne Newton. <laughs> and, you, know, the, you know, when you're a Republican, the depth of, uh, yeah, the of, of a Republican the depth of, of, act of, not, of, of conservative yeah. leaning acts isn't, isn't that great. But Wayne Newton was fantastic. So I'm standing in, in the White House corridor and I'm, <laughs> we had talked with President Bush was there that night. So, we, you know, we'd gotten a chance to talk with him and, and then all of a sudden, I, my wife and I find our, the party was kind of wrapping up and all of a sudden we're just talking to Sam Alito and his wife. Oh, and he was, and so, and he was just a completely bookish, normal, 
Yeah. He's a lawyer. Obviously, you're brilliant if you get nominated for the Supreme Court. And, and, and Alito is respected as, I mean, as a man. Yes. He is a scholar. Yes, That's he is a, a scholar. He is a jurist. Yeah. I mean, he knows his stuff. But, you know, he he wasn't the most dynamic personality. He was a little shy. Yeah. Oh, and he had, just been ca- he had just been cast into this national spotlight, which yeah. is difficult. So I was just trying to be friendly. He had, a, I think, I believe they were in California. So we were talking, my wife and I were talking about California. And we're talking to his wife, who was very outgoing and nice. And we're having this conversation. And no lie, like two seconds later, I turn around and Wayne Newton's standing there. <laughs> And so all of a sudden I'm talking to Wayne Newton, like just me and my wife. It's not like I'm in some group of people. We're talking to Wayne Newton. What a and strange I, jump to go said, from Alito to I've Newton. Alito to Newton in the span of, you know, one 30 second period. And I can't think of two more diametrically no, I know, opposed I know. people. I know. And, and Newton, Wayne Newton is, a, you know, he's a Vegas performer. Everyone's, oh, yeah. he'd be a great politician. He's a really friendly guy down to earth. And uh, so, you know, those are the kind of experiences. What I, a voice uh, Newton has too. <laughs> And and you you by the way in that story you casually dropped, so I, I was talking to the president. Then I turned and talked. Yeah, to no, him. yeah. So you know. how how much interaction did you have with President so, Bush? No, I I had one opportunity to be in the Oval Office with him. You were in the Oval Office. Yes, but it was a it was a, for a staff photo. They get okay, you at right, the right, end. Right. So stop, that's not stop 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 stop. <laughs> You're not going to breeze past the Oval Office. Well, it's, Is the Oval Office? I'm not office... trying to over play something up where I wasn't. Okay, that I'm going to. Okay, I'm going to because this is big. So you're in the Oval Office. Yes. Brian, that's huge. You're playing it like it's I, nothing. This is a big deal. Yeah. So you're in the Oval Office. What's the Oval Office like? So the Oval Office is, I had given numerous, one of the benefits you have is being, of being a White House employee or of a certain level was you could give West Wing tours. Those were always after hours when the president wasn't yeah. working, clearly. But when you get to the Oval Office, they always have a guard, a Secret Service agent standing there and a stanchion rope that you can't cross, but you can stick your head in and look. So wow. I had looked at it numerous times. In you fact, I knew more office. about the Resolute Desk than, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'd give a tour. I was trying to make it somewhat interesting to, to my friends. And and so this time you you go, and it, it was kind of a farewell. It was towards the end of the administration. They said, you can bring your family. So I've got my wife, Rebecca, and two of our sons have been born at that point. So Brandon was, I think he was three, and, and Trevor was still a, like a toddler. Mm-hmm. A, 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 one, he was one at that point. Yeah. So we go in and it's just kind of surreal. You've got a, and I'd met President Bush before this, but it was fun to meet him with my wife and my kids. And of course, you know, there's a photographer in there. So the second you walk in there. Did you know him? Like, like, did he know, he knew no, who you no, were? I'm not going to pretend he knew no. who I was. Okay. I, I had, I had met him numerous times, but the President of the United States meets yeah, thousands sure. of people. Right. I, I knew some of his senior staff. I'd go to West Wing meetings. I'd represent yeah. my agency, but. Who of the big name staffers did you know the best? Uh, I got to know Ed Gillespie really well, who really? just lost yes, to the he, governor of race. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was big Virginia, news. Virginia, yeah. you know, got to you get to know Carl Rove, you get to know those guys. But again, it's just yeah. it, most of the people that you get to know in that circle are are people that are important in policy circles, but they're yeah. not celebrities, which is good because I don't think our government leaders should double as celebrities. Like, uh, I don't know anymore. Uh, I don't know. Well, no, I agree with you. They shouldn't. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't, I guess I don't that, know that, that they takes don't. on an interesting context right now, but you, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, no, I, I, going to work so in way, the West wing. I'm in the West wing. Um, it's a cool place. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of security cool. around the president. Uh, of course there is. There's tons of security. One of the things I got to do, it was fun. This is not a, Celebrity, but the president has dogs always, right? And so President Bush had Barney and Spot. I would lose the other one's name. 
And um, we go, one of the things you get to do is you can, as staff, is you can go to South Lawn events or Rose Garden events where they need staff there. So he'd be there, but they'd always have kind of, there's this guy whose job is to be the dog handler. Mm. So he'd always be there. Well, the second the event breaks up, the president leaves, the Secret Service then kind of leaves and all of a sudden you're out there on the back lawn with the dog handler. So, you know, I go, can I throw the ball for him? Sure. And Barney loved this. Like, it was like either a soccer ball or a volleyball and he would just chase it down. And you're playing, and I'm playing ball with the president's, ball with the president's dog. dog. Those are the kind of things that See, are just that's fun. Awesome. That are, you're, and those are, and I never took those moments for granted because no. it's kind of hard to have that job at the beginning. Cause you know, that's kind of your peak. Yeah. You know, I, awesome. I don't have any aspirations to be president, sure. and, but to, to be out there to, you know, when they're the president's giving the, you know, I'll never forget. I went to the, you know, whenever you give sports teams their, their championship, they'd make their championship visit. Yeah, I'd sure. get invited to those. I mean, it was, you'd get to just see and interact cool with a lot of things. people. And the fun part about being on the white house grounds when there's celebrities there is they're really taken off. They're in an element that they're nervous in. Yeah, they're not for the most part. So, so it's house. fun to just go make them feel at ease. Like when you're going up to, you know, the starting center of, of the University of Florida basketball team and just kind of say, hey, are you enjoying your time here? And they're like, oh, good. Someone's talking to me. I don't need to feel awkward. That is so cool. So it, it's just, it was a fun time. It was, and so I got to do a lot of, a lot of interesting things, travel another, the world. Another and, White House question. Yes. And then I want to get to travel a little no, bit. No, no, yeah. Um, did you ever get to bowl in the White House? Yes. Yes. So there is a bowling alley. There is a bowling alley. It's in the President Nixon put it in, I believe. It's in the uh, old executive or the Eisenhower Executive Office building, which is part of the right next to the West Wing. It's two lanes, and you could reserve it. Um, I, you know, fun. My one of my favorite stories is my my brother was uh, single and not married. As I said, DC is a great place to come if you're a single Mormon not married. I he was living out on the West Coast getting his MBA at USC, and I said. He's like, I'm not finding one to date here. I'm like, come out to DC. I'll set you up on a couple of dates. So I say, I said, I went to one of my friends uh, who was in the Colonial Ward Bishopric at that point and said, can you recommend two young women that would love to just go on a blind date? I'll tell them why they should go on this date because I know blind dates are scary. They'll either get to bowl at the White House or they'll get to go on a West Wing tour. And so (laughs) even if my brother is a troll, which he's not... It'll still be a blind date oh, worth going awesome. on that you'll have a memory from. You'll still get to either bowl so, at the yeah, White House. Yeah. I would choose bowling at yeah. the White House all day <laughs> it long. Was, I mean, it was pretty cool. cool. Was that? So we, I took him on. I, yeah. I bowled a bunch of times there, but we took him. And it's a fun bowling alley because there's no one. There's no adult supervision. Yeah. So you just kind of bowl, and if you want to kind of goof around a little, you're okay. And cool side note, your brother yeah. married the girl that went to the, on the West, West Wing, Wing tour. tour. Both girls were fa- young women were fantastic. Yeah. But um, and your brother now lives out here. My brother. Not only did I help him yeah. meet his future uh, future spouse, who they now have three beautiful children. They now live out here together, and yeah. So I've kind of converted him to it's Potomac awesome. fever. So it's oh so, uh, so cool. Yeah, that is fantastic. It's fun. Well, so a little bit about travel to wrap up. So you traveled a lot with yeah. this position. Where are some of the more interesting places you went? So since we were doing drug policy. The places where drugs come from are not exactly the most. Yeah, probably the not most, in Cartagena. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. Colombia, Afghanistan, yeah. Venezuela, wow. Brazil, which is great. So you were but, going to those. Places. Oh yeah, no, going all the. In fact, one of my favorite stories, and and one of the reasons I actually looked into wanted to be a government employee and get into government service. Yeah, it is exciting to have like a security clearance. Exciting sure. to serve your country. And just to kind of represent the U.S. And so one of my favorite movies growing up, I love the Tom Clancy kind of movies. Yeah. 
And one of my favorite movies was Clear and Present Danger. Of course. And what's the iconic scene from Clear and Present Danger? It's a, it's the drug czar goes down to Bogota or it's Cartagena, one of the yeah. cities, and is driving around a motorcade. And all of a sudden, the suburban, the suburban, yeah. all He's of a sudden, Jack Ryan, who is yeah. played by uh, Harrison, uh, Ford. Harrison Ford, they're they're all trapped. Of, they're trapped. Yeah. All of the all the guys on these dirt bikes who are supposed to be guarding them turn on them and fire yeah. RPGs at them. So. I'll never forget within, I don't know, it was a couple of years after I started this job. I'm, we're in Bogota. My boss is going to meet with President Uribe, the president of the country. And we're in a motorcade driving through these windy streets of Bogota. And I'm sitting in the back of this armored suburban. And I look behind me and there are two guys on motorbikes with machine guns around them. And I said, I am in this movie scene. Which was just one of my favorite moments of life. Except I didn't want it to end the way the movie ended. But. Brian, that but is awesome. I That's knew that so I had I was living the dream at that yeah. moment. Like I said, I peaked when I was, you know, awesome. I was young, but it no, was no. it was fantastic. You're doing great. That's so, awesome. Yeah, no, it, but we, we got Brian, to Brian is so fun. Did you did you ever did you usually fly commercial when you traveled or did you fly my boss, I he was a good public servant and it costs a lot to actually fly in the right. military been, ones. You can do it, well, but the, he didn't demand that. The so last couple commercial. months there's been a lot of discussion yeah, of that. Yes, so. exactly. We we uh, he he was a great he's a great mentor. I still work with him to to this day again. Yeah. We've gotten back together, but but um we flew commercial. So So what was it like then ending that time? Bush Ends up, you know, he's he's done two yeah, terms. So, yeah. I mean, he's done. We know he's done. You wrap up your time. Was it sad to leave? Was it hard uh, to yeah, leave? Yeah, it was very hard. You, your position kind of had an expiration date. Yes. Oh, you know that the whole time. In yeah. fact, it's got a first expiration date, and then you win the re, the reelect. Yeah. And then you aren't even sure if, because you're serving at the, they call it serving at the pleasure of the president. So he could ask you to resign. I mean, all the time presidents ask their cabinet officials to resign. And at that it's point, I was so tied to the boss. Yeah, exactly. It happens fast. It happens fast. I was so tied to my boss that I knew I would yeah. resign with him if, if that was it. But fortunately, my boss was doing a great job. We lowered drug use 25% among teens during our eight-year period. So awesome. he kept them all the way through. Um, and so, But leaving is, is challenging. And you don't know when to leave because you really, if you're smart, get out a little early. Yeah, and then there's the diehards like me who aren't smart that you just milk you it to the it bit, not milk it, but just go to the very end and dragged out by drag it out. Else. And you know, I'm sitting there briefing Obama people as they're coming in, telling them, "Here's how you do this," You're knowing they're the going to handover stuff. Yeah, 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 you do handover and you know, write briefing books for them and, and yeah. help them, knowing they're going to do what they do, and that's fine. That's the. So where did that take you after? after so your after I left there, I got a job with General Electric. Um, I've kind of had a goal not to to be a lobbyist in my life. Yeah. And, and so I worked for them not as a lobbyist, but doing uh, what's called public affairs, which yeah. is kind of a communications function. I started out at headquarters uh, working with a CEO, but then they quickly said, you should just stay in DC. This is yeah. where your skill set is. Sure. And, and so um, I, you know, worked for them for about a year and a half, really yeah. enjoyed it until the think tank world came calling. Some of my former colleagues said, you need to come join us. And so now you're in this think tank world. Tell us what a think tank does. So a think tank is in Washington, the kind of, uh, it, it's kind of the brain brains of Washington. So for those who aren't, don't realize this, most of Washington is run by 25 year olds who are really smart staffers, enough, staffers yeah. but they don't necessarily have the depth of knowledge on, I mean, it's impossible to become an expert on tax policy and every policy. So think tanks, are and they're usually aligned with you know political left of center, right of center, far left, far right. But they are set up and, and exist. We're all kind of nonprofits, supposed to be nonpartisan, which we are. 
um, where they come up with policy papers. And so if you're thinking about tax policy, you can go, hey, I like this scholar that works at Hudson Institute, which is where I work, and they come and see you and and uh, and and you help them, you know, develop good policy. And, and what's, so, what's your position now at Hudson? So I'm a senior fellow uh, because that has to do with more of my drug policy experience. Yeah. Um, but I'm recently in the last year became vice president of development, which means the daunting task of we're we're funded by donors, so yeah. making sure that that we have the donations and funds we need to operate. And Hudson is a prestigious think tank. You it's, guys are well-respected in what you do. It's a fun place to work. It's, That's really uh, cool. Brian, you've lived such a fascinating life. And, uh, you know, and then to be a bishop for six and a half years of this, <laughs> to be a father of four, to be a husband this entire time. I mean, it's just awesome. It's awesome to look at look at all that you've done. Appreciate you taking this time, and Absolutely. it's fun, fun just to catch up. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, Brian and I have been very dear friends since, uh, gosh, probably when we were 13 or so. Yeah, we so, met on the bus. The reason we're in the bus club is we met on a bus. Probably 32, 32 yeah. years now, yeah, something like that. Time. So, uh, Brian, we'll, we'll let you go. Before we do, um, thank you again. This was just awesome. One of the things we do at the end of every episode, I ask every guest the same question. And that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Being a member of the church is absolutely inextricably linked with who I am. I, the church has helped me and the gospel has helped me to, um, I think, uh, have the empathy I need to, to serve others, to love others, to try and bring people together. Even in politics, I believe that people can, uh, you know, we should always look for the best in each other. And I think that's the way Christ looked in at all of us and looks yeah. at all of us, knows us. And, and I take great comfort, especially as serving as a bishop um, and the experiences that gave me to serve of knowing that God really does know each of us individually. And if we you know, open our hearts to him, that, that he'll guide us and, and direct us. And I felt that in my life. I don't think most of the things that have happened to me in my life have been by accident. I, I feel like as I've stayed close to him, things aren't perfect. I've, problems all the time but as i stay close to him that, that i'm guided and directed and i i'm grateful for that and and i you know i'm grateful for my savior and i'm grateful for the for his gospel and 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 the love he shows for all of us and i think that uh, you know even in times of great difficulty those are times when we turn our hearts to him and yeah and i've seen that and and it's sad when those things bad things have to happen we've seen lots of them lately but i also know that that he's there so I love the gospel. Beautiful answer. Brian, you are uh, just, it's a fascinating life you lived. And I think you're a tremendous credit to our faith. A great Mormon to have out there in this uh, difficult place that is Washington, D.C. And that was a fascinating look. So thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it, Sean. Thank you. My special thanks to my dear friend, Brian Blake. What an incredible guy. I could have talked to him for hours. In fact, I think even though we recorded really late, I think we, we hung out for another hour, which I'm not always a late night guy sometimes, but uh, when we were younger, we used to hang out all night. So great to see Brian and I just cherish his friendship. 
Uh, this week in my latter-day life, I had an interesting experience uh, with light the world. I, I actually just got back from a nine-day trip, and uh, I was on the East Coast, West Coast. I was in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and then San Diego, Las Vegas, St. George, and back home. Crazy, crazy nine days. But the first part of it was super fun. I took my oldest daughter to Disney World for three days uh, as her Christmas slash birthday present, and we had such a great time. And we finished up on Monday, and on Monday I was supposed to fly from Orlando um, out to Philadelphia originally. I had a customer I needed to go see out in New Jersey. And in Monday evening, um, we were getting ready to fly. My daughter was flying back home to Utah. But Monday morning, I started noticing I really wasn't feeling fantastic. My whole body was just kind of sore and achy, and my stomach was a bit upset, and I had a headache. And as the day progressed on, it just got worse and worse. And by the time we got to the airport in the afternoon, I had a fever. And this is how I get sick, when, especially when I get the flu. I spike really high fevers, have these sleepless nights, and I get through it pretty fast. It hits me super hard, super fast, and then it's over with. And I was sitting on the plane, uh, just feeling miserable. Like, can we just get to Philadelphia, please? And this, this fever was super, super high, and I just wanted to go to bed. And they announced that there was a problem with the plane. And I sat there on the plane. I was in a great seat, very comfortable, but I sat there just going, why? Why tonight of all nights? And then they announced that uh, I had a connection, by the way, from uh, Orlando. I was flying into uh, Detroit and then Detroit over to Philadelphia, just the way the routing worked. And they announced it was going to be such a delay that I wasn't going to be able to make my flight from Detroit to Philadelphia. Forget about it. I got off the plane and saw there was a flight the next morning to New York. And, and honestly, my customer was kind of was kind of almost sixes going from New York or going from Philadelphia. So I decided to fly the next morning. Well, I had them take my bag off the off the plane, and it was a a large checked bag. And they said it's going to take you know half hour, forty five minutes to pull your bag. And this fever just got worse and worse. And there I was at the airport, so tired. Have you ever been so sick and so tired that you could just lay down on the floor? You could lay down on a filthy floor and just pass out. That is how sick and tired I was. And I started to feel worse and worse. And my head was pounding and it was taking forever. And uh, I just started getting really upset. Now, I travel almost every week of my life. And, you know, I'm a big boy. I've been through a lot. But at that point, all I wanted to do, I just wanted a bed and I just wanted shelter. And finally that suitcase showed up. Orlando, it's kind of neat. They actually have a, a hotel built into the airport, literally as part of the airport. So I took the escalators up, went and checked in and it's a nice uh, Hyatt or Hilton, something like that. Checked in, got up to my room and I was shivering, freezing cold, shivering from this fever. And uh, I laid down on the bed and was just having a tough time even moving. And after a few minutes, I started to warm up. I had cranked up the heat in the room. And I realized that I had not looked at what the light the world was that day. And for some reason, I felt that I should read <laughs> what it was. And that day, it was Matthew twenty-five thirty-five. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. And there I was in a very nice hotel, you know, traveling. I mean, everything was as easy as could be, and it felt like the end of the world to me. And I 
for some reason was able to think about what it must be like for someone who is a refugee who is sick. And I thought about all the refugees and how, what a tough life, what a tough life they have, but also homeless people. And it's bad enough being homeless, but what happens when you're homeless and you have a fever? And for some people, this is just an everyday thing. What about a child who has nowhere to stay? And I was so humbled by how insignificant my situation was that I had to wait on a plane or wait in an airport for an hour and how little of a deal that was. And then I ended up in a nice hotel room with a big cozy bed, but uh, somehow reading that I was a stranger and you took me in, made me redouble my efforts um, to serve, especially refugees and homeless people. That was the message that I got from that. And that has stuck with me all this week. And I've been thinking of ways that we can do more in our lives to work with refugees, people without a home. There's something about having a home. And when I got home today, and just something about home, and for people without a home, oh, it is incumbent on every single one of us to reach out and to do everything we can to either bring them into our homes, help them find a home, whatever it is. And I'm actually grateful. I, I did force myself to kneel down by the bed that night. I went from shivering cold to bursting in a big sweat. What's funny is it was a 24-hour flu. The next day I felt fantastic and, and flew to New York and made my appointment and I was fine the rest of the week. But um, as I knelt down and prayed, I was able to say to my Heavenly Father that how thankful I was for that sickness and for that little blip that I know sounds really insignificant, but for me it was a hard, hard night. And uh, wonderful lesson learned. And I love Christmas and I love light the world. So that is what is happening in my Latter-day life this week. I uh, think we want to thank you so much for listening this week as every week. Again, we have a new show for you next week. I'm very excited about our guest. Uh, it's an exciting guest and it will be a Christmas themed show. Um, if you want to get a hold of me for any reason, I can be reached Sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. Uh, social media, we can be reached on Twitter at latterday underscore lives. Facebook, we're facebook.com slash latterdaylives podcast. And Instagram, we're ladder underscore day underscore lives. Uh, we try to be active on social media, but please, we love your feedback. If you get a moment and can uh, give us a rating. There's nothing better for us than reviews. Reviews really help us to be found. Um, a friend of mine uh, pointed out last week that we are up to 27 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Isn't that amazing? And uh, pretty much all of them are five stars. So thank you so much. But if you can leave a rating, whether it's on Google Play uh, Music or if it's on Stitcher or TuneIn or uh, Player FM, we're available everywhere you can get a podcast pretty much. So please do so. And again, you can always check things out on uh, latterdaylives.com and you can stream directly from there. So uh, we will look forward to catching up with you next week on our next episode. And until then, please remember, there's a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.